0: And welcome to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shango Lose. The Gontrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly to entrepreneurs, cannabis growers, product developers, and cannabis medicine researchers, all focused on making the most of cannabis normalization. As your host, I do my best to bring you original cannabis industry ideas that will ignite your own entrepreneurial spark and give you actionable information to improve your business strategy and improve your health and the health of cannabis patients everywhere. Today, my guest is Kat Jeter. Grandma Kat Jeter is the founder of Deep Green, a full plant cannabis extracts producer located in Washington State. Founded with pediatric outreach as a core principle, award-winning Deep Green has been a market leader in product testing, direct patient outreach, and branding from its very inception. I've asked Kat to be a guest on the show today because of her 43 years of medical cannabis experience. You know, every tribe has a keeper of the stories, and and Kat is a prominent protector of that flame in Washington. She has participated in nearly every aspect of the cannabis industry and advocacy, and because of that, she has an understanding of the arc of cannabis history that very few people can offer. So during today's show, we're going to discuss the early days of medical cannabis in Washington, how the industry matured, and its very controversial demise coming on July 1st of this year. Welcome to the show, Kat.
1: Thank you so much, Shango, for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you and your listeners.
0: So Kat, let's start off at the beginning. Let's go all the way back to 1998. You know, Initiative 692 was passed, which um, allowed medical marijuana in the state and also gave permission to doctors to talk to their patients about marijuana. Um, What was it like then? Were were people caught off guard and, and was there instantly an industry? What was it like in those very early days?
1: Well, I think it's important to recognize that Washington has historically had a very tolerant attitude towards cannabis. Uh, we were busy culturally creating what you might refer to as a dankster class of citizen long before um, we ever got to any discussion of medical cannabis. And it goes back to our, our uh, historical advocates uh, in the mid-90s, Joanne McKee, Ron Parker, Ralph Seeley, all of who were involved in legal action and led to a failed Uh, populist action, I-685 in 1997. And then in 1998, a more uh, streamlined 692 was ratified. But these are the very, very early years. And this was still somewhat of a very frightening place. So I think it's, it's important to recognize that Washington was still very, very decentralized in the way we approached medical cannabis. You needed to know someone or you Needed to be working with the black market essentially to um, take care of your own personal medical needs or needs for a friend. Uh, there was, to the best of my knowledge, only one operating co op, and that was Joanne McKee's and Ron Parker's, the Green Cross over on Bainbridge Island. Um, but nonetheless, the desire was there, yet it took a couple of more steps in the process to make that access readily available. Among them, were, in 2007, Senate Bill 632, um, uh, stipulated possession limits. Up until then, you you could have cannabis, but how much? What was that trooper on the side of the road going to judge was how much? We didn't have arrest protection. We had only affirmative defenses. So you can see how that was a very uneasy intersection. And then what really turned everything on its head was in 2010, When Senate Bill 5798 enabled more medical professionals to recommend cannabis. Now you had limits. Suddenly you had the availability of getting that recommendation, so access had to follow. And this is when we really see that collectives and the dispensary model really starts growing in Washington state.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. The, the idea of early medical marijuana existing, but there not yet being a dispensary system to get it, that seems that seems so messy, <laughs> where, where, you, where you know as a patient you are allowed to, get your, to possess it, but you're still going to the black market for it. There must have been a lot of scrambling by patients who saw the promise of what medical marijuana might be able to do for them, but yet how on earth do they get it?
1: Well, and this is, I think, true of almost any cultural movement, that the early adopters are out there and are scrambling. It can be risky. Um, From my own family experience, my own father died during this period, and we wanted to help him with his death process. Um, I sent my son up to Northgate Mall to meet a fellow named Moadib, is all we knew him as. (laughs) And, (laughs) uh, you know, we smoked joints and we made butter for, for my terminally ill father. We weren't even terribly well versed in of science, nor in the process or production of particular products. Uh, this is the same era that Rick Simpson was uh, very busy reacquainting us with an ancient herbal extraction technique, making uh, concentrates using some type of a solvent. Um, so yes, dark days indeed, and confusing for people.
0: You know, those of us who who ha, you know are associated with cannabis mostly just in the last say five to ten years. We. You know, RSO has always been there for us. Different solvents have always been there for us. But, but when you're talking about, it was very much the days of, of early pot brownies. And even though those have become iconic, for a lot of people getting the, the cannabis out of the flower and into an edible was itself an advanced <laughs> extraction technique.
1: Well, you know, I like to say this, this proliferation of medical cannabis over these last six years has brought about a radical uh, shift in the way that we think of the plant, not only of its various pieces, but to the plant as a whole. And, it, you know, we've just had a renaissance of new products and reimaginings of cannabis and how we use it not only to heal, but to recreate.
0: You know, somebody who was in your position in those early days, I imagine there's a lot of similarities to nowadays where people are asking basic health care questions and, and how cannabis could help them. But, but nowadays, we've got the internet and we've got conventions and we, we're able to exchange information and we've got the beginnings of, of new studies that are coming out of Europe. It must have been really challenging for you to have patients approaching you And asking for information and guidance when the access to information um, was really hard.
1: Well, and it was even hard for me. You know, we knew that smoking a joint certainly made anyone who was going through chemotherapy feel a whole lot better and help them to keep their next meal down. Uh, But we didn't have any real sense, I don't think, as even a culture um, in exactly how what we refer to now as cannabinoid therapy at various dosing levels from low to high, um, how they might, you know, that type of approach might help us. The shift has just been radical in the last 10 years.
0: You, it must have been really strange too to uh, be legitimized with the passing of the initiative to allow medical cannabis and yet still having to go to the black market and that that shifty vibe that you can you know sometimes feel when you're when you're involved in a you know in a prohibited activity and yet you're doing it for the most right and allowable reasons the mixture of the prohibition culture and medical marijuana culture must have felt very awkward. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I think this is really one of the inhibiting factors on growth of medical cannabis right now, is we refer to it as legal, yet there is a tremendous amount of oppression still associated with medical cannabis. Your job can be held hostage to this. Your family might be held hostage to this, although we see much less of it in Washington nowadays. Um, you know, there's a, a still a tremendous amount of judgment associated with Yourself as someone who chooses a safe herb over a pharma solution. Um, we're making progress, but we certainly haven't pulled the veil back yet. The discomfort is not le- yet alleviated.
0: You know, uh, you mentioned the, the explosion in medical marijuana once the dispensaries existed. And certainly after the dispensaries existed, there was a lot more access and and there were more people, uh, you know, being able to make money by providing medicine as well. Was, there, was anybody really making money ahead of the dispensaries uh, coming into existence? It sounds to me like there were, uh, it, it probably just yeah, uh, it, it infused a bunch of, Uh, new customers into the black market that had affirmative defense, but there probably wasn't enough uh, economic viability of that model to really have anybody making much money before the dispensaries.
1: I think that's right and this is one of the ways in which our early medical states are really rather unique when comparing them against the more commercial models that have come along recently and that is we do come from a place of compassion. Um, you know, you got to be compassionate when you're when you're risking yourself in a um, very, very limitedly defined legal world to help your brother or your sister or your mother or your child. Um, now we are approaching it in a much more broad-based approach and a much more commercial approach, which, of course, you know, is going to lead to a more normalization of the commercial model. Um, I really didn't see a lot of money flowing through the system uh, until we got to a point where there were a lot of collectives beginning to appear, and then there would be a few that were just killing it on the commercial level, uh, and naturally, they were doing very well financially. But this is simple economics. With risk comes reward, and it has been very risky throughout all of our medical phase here in Washington.
0: Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the risks involved and what enforcement looked like during medical marijuana in Washington after our break, but we are going to take that first break right now. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. Because you listen to the Gondrepreneur podcast, it is very likely that you are a business owner now or that you plan on getting into cannabis soon. If you're starting a business, at some point you're gonna want some swag with your name on it to give away or maybe even to sell. Promotional items are a way to stay in your customer's life long after you come into contact with them. You know, it reminds them to double back and buy more of your stuff, but it also reminds them to tell their friends about you. Well, at Gondrepreneur, we've been asked by so many new cannabis business owners for referrals on promotional items because they're you know, getting ready for a convention or a party or they just want to give it away that we went ahead and brought together some preferred vendors and we put them on our website for you. The web address is Gondrepreneur.com forward slash promo items. Everybody loves doing lighters and t-shirts, and those are still huge winners, of course, but some folks are even now doing logoed silicone dab jars and rig rags too. There's so much to choose from. The website is gonrepreneur.com forward slash promo items. Go get some cool stuff to promote your company. As a cannabis entrepreneur, you know how challenging recruiting quality talent can be. Your day's already busy enough, and yet there's an ever-growing pile of resumes on your desk and your team is begging you to hire more help. Hiring the right person can make a profound impact on your company. There's no reason that you have to suddenly be an expert hiring manager. Not when there is Viridian Staffing. Viridian Staffing recruits solely for adult use cannabis, medical marijuana and hemp companies and those that service them. Viridian Staffing's recruiters each have over 10 years of experience, and they will use that experience to recruit the kind of employees that will make you look good. Whether you're looking for a master grower, extractor, grow room support, or trimming, Viridian can find an appropriate person in your area. They can even recruit administrative or graphic design professionals who may not need cannabis experience. Because you are a startup, you may also need human resources help for a while. Viridian staffing can make sure that your HR files are complete and keep you out of trouble with state and federal employment requirements. Because the cannabis industry is booming, cannabis recruiting companies are popping up all over the country. But good marketing does not mean good recruiting some of the recruiting shops that have opened are run by novices who do not yet have a thorough understanding of employment law and the complexities of hiring for cannabis. Don't hire an amateur to find you a professional. Consider Viridian Staffing to make that stack of resumes disappear and complete your team with exactly the hire you were hoping for. You can find out more at viridianstaffing.com that's v-i-r-i-d-i-a-n staffing.com and now back to the show Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shangolos. And our guest this week is cannabis patient advocate and entrepreneur Kat Jeter. So, Kat, before the break, we were talking about how in the early days patients had to go to the black market because this was ahead of the dispensary system. And so that kind of makes me think that it was it was it may have been common for patients to get Uh, busted by the police because they're going um, about what could seem like a black market transaction but as a patient they're actually allowed to have the cannabis you know how, how many people were getting busted back in the day
1: Well, I think there were, you know, especially when that intersection between black market and what was medical was being defined, I think, you know, it was business as usual the way we'd seen it. Now, we've mentioned Washington was a tolerant state, but certainly if you were pulled over on the side of the road and any reason given to crack your trunk and you had a half a pound back there, whether you were getting ready to bag it out or you were getting ready to make full plant extract, um, I don't think law enforcement particularly cared cared. But that trans... That's transferred into a very focused effort as collectives began um, organizing and serving with the demand for access and product in Washington. And it seemed to be a, you know, there were a lot of variables. One was geographical. You certainly wanted to be in a friendly county or a friendly city. Um, A lot of it was the profile with which you carried yourself. You know, were you driving a new Ferrari or, uh, you know, showing it off. Again, we talked about with risk comes reward, but in an age of judgment, that might not have been your best stance for safety. So what we saw were um, clusters of bust where WestNet Drug Task Force would sweep down on two or three organizations at once and create a real climate of fear. You never saw a whole industry who could drop its umbrellas and be on the road any faster than the medical cannabis industry when there were busts happening. Um, So it made it really very tenuous. But slowly we figured out where the safe jurisdictions were. Uh, I think the best players in the industry figured out they needed to get a business license, communicate with their communities, um, and take a best practices approach. But it still didn't stop the fact that this is still federally illegal and you operated by the force. Of your local authorities.
0: You know, before the break, we were talking about how, in the in the early days, it was it was mostly all folks could do to extract. Um, Cannabis out into a fat like butter and make it into an edible for for patients who you know were not prepared to be smoking and yet still needed the cannabinoids inside them, and and it, it was interesting to me to consider that over your forty three years of experience you're probably answering a lot of the same questions that patients um, were asking then now. And I wonder to what degree your answers have changed because obviously we've learned so much more as a cannabis scene than we knew 43 years ago.
1: A lot of the questions are the same simply because there are so many people who are Uneducated, undereducated, uh, or misunderstand. But a lot of the questions are evolving too. Certainly the questions where someone is terminally ill and fighting for that last bit of quality of life that they may have. Uh, those questions have stayed the same because our understanding of cannabis as a helpful healing agent at that point in life has not radically changed over the last 20 years. This were These were the examples that we used to legitimize medicine Medical cannabis and get it legalized to begin with. But more recently, we're seeing questions about how cannabis can help with addiction issues or persistent pain or depression. How you know um, a- how you can access cannabis that doesn't make you high, for instance. Uh, we hear more questions about accessing cannabis for ongoing health rather than end-of-life issues. I think all in all it demonstrates a cultural competence and evolving awareness of the power of the plant.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I would think that people's questions are getting more sophisticated themselves because in the early days, they were, they were just hearing a whisper over a dinner table or something or a, you know, a recommendation from a friend, whereas now people will have heard that, they will have Googled a little bit, and then they're coming for more of an expert opinion built on top of that. So I would think that the people, people who approach you are approaching you with much more sophisticated questions generally.
1: Without a doubt. And thank heavens for the information age. We have better access now to that growing body of science. Uh, We're able to network better with each other. We understand conditions that are helped with cannabis. We understand how various components of the plant, from cannabinoids to terpenes to flavonoids to even the waxes and lipids, um, how they help the healing process and help the plant. To work and whole. Certainly one of the biggest discussions lately has been the entourage effect. Instead of focusing on just THC or CBD, we're beginning to look at how the various constituents of the plant interact to make it an even more powerful healing agent. Um, we've also seen that the, qual- the, the uh, discussion has shifted from cure exclusively to focusing on quality of life instead.
0: Um, you know, as, as far as the quality of life goes, you know, at the top of the show, you were talking about how in 2010, um, the scene kind of got more protections and, and a little bit more of a green light as as more healthcare care providers were allowed to write prescriptions. And also there were more protections because they started to give um, you know the amount, of carry amounts, and how much you could have on your person and have at home, and and then from what I saw, uh, this was turned up even more in February of 2014 when the Cole II memo came out, and they gave um, the the, uh, the the necessary aspects for individual states to do medical marijuana, and at the time Washington seemed to be in a good uh, position on all of those, and it really to cause the market in Washington to explode. The number of dispensaries went up. People really felt like they had protections at that point that before that simply were not uh, as significant. Were people looking for the Cole 2 memo to happen or were they just really pleasantly surprised when it came out?
1: You know, I think the Cole 2 memo is is one of those situations where I ask myself, was it really medical driving it along, or uh, do we need to also acknowledge the fact that two states had just said, we're over your prohibition, we're going to legalize for all 21-plus adults? Um, you know, I found that it had less to do with medical from my own point of view. Um, it A fair amount of it for medicals felt like, I see your lips moving, but what have you done for me lately? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in Washington, we were right in the middle of a very aggressive um, persecution of the Kettle Falls Five out in the eastern side of the state. Uh, this at a time when DOJ had been, or Department of Justice, had been told, quit spending funds on this. Um, you know, uh, we were, I think, looking for more positivity as opposed to another list of prohibitions. Nonetheless, there's no doubt that it did cause the absolute explosion, it in addition to uh, the 502 passage, uh, in anticipation of what was going to be a legal market. Um, you know, and it's been a wildly successful uh, little Petri dish. of. Uh, for 30 years, I'd been sitting back and wondering, what if cannabis was legal? Well, you know what? Coming at a time when our own economics had been a downturn, it was Washington's own economic stimulus plan. There were new firms. There were people with new jobs. However, I have to comment, too, our wild embrace of the cannabis lifestyle, uh, including high times um, events and local cannabis competitions, uh, absolutely may have been our downfall at a time when the rest of the community was not moving as fast in their understanding of safe recreation with cannabis and safe healing.
0: Yeah, I think that you nailed that on the head, Kat. I mean, the, the, the scene as a whole exploded, and that meant you had more people doing compassionate care and also more people seeing a financial opportunity and also more people seeing an opportunity to party in the open a little bit more. So all the different aspects of uh, medical cannabis... Um, all got bigger at the same time, and there were plenty of opportunities for people to point at, at, at minor parts of the community and say, see, that's that's what we think is bad, and that's what medical is, but but actually whatever part of that was either being misinterpreted by the general public who don't understand med- the medical cannabis scene as a whole, or simply th- it was a very insignificant part of the scene that they really wanted to uh, shine their light on. Uh, you know, similar- Similarly, you were talking about the economic development that came with it. Uh, where I live out here on Vashon Island, after the coal 2 memo, uh, you know, businesses really. Got serious about supplying the dispensaries all through washington state i mean we 've been growing high quality indicas here on Vashon Island since the '70s so you know the fact that people grow was not a big deal here, but the idea that suddenly those folks were able to come out of the closet, um, get business licenses, develop relationship with dispensaries, start delivering their product, getting it off the island, and and actually starting to help um, you know, develop, you know, have rural economic development and families that were once fringe being able to start to participate in in true economics statewide, you know, that that was a really beautiful thing and that created a, a wonderful opportunity. At the same time though, you know, people were really aware that the you know, I-502 had made the ballot and had passed, and we all felt a transition starting to to happen. And that transition was starting to scare many people. And, and oh, looks like it's time for us to take another break. Um, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk about medical marijuana uh, after I-502 passed. Uh, you are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. The Gontrepreneur podcast is listened to by tens of thousands of cannabis entrepreneurs and enthusiasts every single week. These folks are most likely your target customers, and we'd like to introduce you to each other. Our down-to-earth and information-rich commercial breaks can deliver your message to the cannabis business community and others who just find relief in getting high. If you want to reach out and connect with our audience in the most personal way that we can offer, go ahead and drop us an email at grow at gontrepreneur.com, and we can talk about you becoming a commercial sponsor of the podcast. Thanks for listening and being part of the Gontrepreneur family. Now back to the show. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis patient advocate and entrepreneur, Kat Kat Jeter. So before the break, we were talking about the transition that everybody felt coming when I-502 recreational marijuana made the ballot and passed with a real significant support uh, in the state of Washington. And it created this split in the medical marijuana scene as more people started moving their intentions towards getting uh, commercial licenses, moving over to the recreational side with with the eyes of, of expanding their businesses And hopefully making some money and then other folks who maybe didn't have as much access to capital and maybe were more patient-centric for whatever anybody's personal reasons were the scene absolutely started to split did you see that too from where you were sitting kat
1: Oh, without a doubt. It was an extremely, and still is, contentious age. Um, I've seen former allies break apart and become each other's worst enemy over this issue. You know, it really, at, at issue is, how resistant are you going to be to change? You know, at the end of the day, if everyone who's negotiating for change goes away a little bit unhappy, you know you've probably got a workable deal. Um, unfortunately... In, in creating rights for adult users, we had to step or didn't maybe have to, but the rights of medical cannabis patients were disregarded um, and a number of other aspects were were rather negative about the bill, too, and just indicated an understanding of cannabis. The per se DUI basically made every medical patient a de facto altered driver, yet there's no scientific evidence that supports that, um, you know, five nanograms of cannabinoids in your bloodstream somehow impair your driving. Um, you know, it, the whole idea was sold uh, after a initiative was run in the previous year, which we always felt like plowed the ground for legalization, and it was run by and large by the heritage medicals and heritage providers. So we felt like we'd reaped a corrupt harvest um, based on our plowing efforts in the year before. Nonetheless, don't we have to accept and celebrate the fact that my grandkids, who are quickly approaching 21, will no longer be looking at jail time for, you know, simple possession. Um, Society moves back and forth. You're always swinging to one side or the other of the middle, and truth lies in that negotiation of culture um, and activity, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it has been difficult, and along the way, uh, we should have known that it would never last because we'd been working from the compassionate model and very few people taxing their products or declaring taxes on their products. Uh, we find ourselves now in a model even with the compassion, oppressed tax column that uh, patients are going to be, unless they give away their HIPAA medical rights with the registry, uh, paying sales tax on the only medicine in the state of Washington. They have a right to feel oppressed. And I think um, the folks who worked from the compassionate point of view have every right to feel that in an age of disinformation leading up to the licensing and what we now think suspect maybe even have some evidence could have been some favoritism in the granting of licenses for what goes forth next i think we also have a right to feel that as pioneers our intellectual and our financial capital has been squandered in this state Uh, we've put the leaders on the outside looking in and the newcomers on the inside laughing. Yeah,
0: that's a really good point. And, you know, that's not how the other states did it. You know, in, in, in Colorado, they took their existing medical marijuana structure and blessed it and then helped it transition to become what was then a combined recreational and medical. Whereas in Washington, they did their best to sideline and exclude everybody who was involved in medical and then bring in all new people from other industries and gave them the licenses to to produce uh, cannabis, and you know, I knew that there, this was going to get ugly. Uh, back at that very first WSLCB meeting downtown, with that packed room, and there, there, you know, sitting down in the chairs were were patients. And a lot of new business faces that I had never seen before. And then in the back of the room were, were a bunch of really angry activists with signs, and they were interrupting, you know, the folks who were speaking. And, and for them, this was the end of patient access. And they saw the mess that was coming down the line. And, and so many of us were really hoping that they were overreacting. But now, you know, two years later, we see that they nailed it and their anger was justified. They were just prescient and understanding what was going to happen two years earlier than everybody else. And that was such a clear uh, manifestation of the schism that was coming, um, you know, with the passing of, of I 502 and then and then 5050 to last year, which got rid of all the dispensaries. So, so you know, so here we are today, right? It's it's June 7th, and we've got 23 days until the July 1st deadline when all the dispensaries have to be closed, and the whatever 19 years of medical marijuana as we know it comes to an end. What do you see as the landscape for medical marijuana going forward, Kat? I mean, is it even is it even worth calling it medical marijuana anymore? I mean, what do you, what do you see as the future?
1: Well, you know, I think there's a case that can be made that all me- all cannabis is medical, right? You know, if if it's true that it's good for your health, then, you know, even casually toking up a joint uh, can be somewhat medical for you. But, you know, those people weren't wrong. Uh, well, I think maybe we could have espoused a little softer shoe approach and in fighting for our rights. Um, the worst has, in fact, come to happen. Patients are in a panic. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, At our office, we get many calls a day. Where am I going to be able to find Deep Green in the future? And we tell them we're scrambling like all the historical medicals as fast as we can to get there for you. Because a current survey of the 502 shops shows no medical products in them right now or a very, very, very limited selection. Um, Now, is that, you know, it's a chicken or egg situation. Currently, you can't talk about medical in a 502 retail environment so is it they can't talk about it so why would they have it or is it um, they simply don't want it what I hear from the 502 rec store owners is it's all about the THC and the recreational aspect of it Um, it, you know many access points have closed already further constricting access in these final months for our patients Um, a few are committed to serving the public right up until the end including at least one that I know of that's going to have their doors open right up until midnight on June 30th. Um, I understand at least two farmers' markets are going to fight for their ground um, and try to create a new private model in which, as a member, you can still access the heritage and legacy farmers that have served the market so well up until now. Um, Many medical brands, my own included, we're busy scrambling in negotiations with companies that already have processing capacity, looking either for space to process our own product or branding situations. Um, You know, a, a majority of the historical cottage brands are simply going to go by the wayside or going to slide back to what could be called the black market again. I reject that term, and I refer to call it now the people's market. The people have ratified their desire for cannabis, not one, not two, but three different times now in the state of Washington. Um, How many times do we have to ask, how many times do we have to demonstrate to our legislators that this is what we want? You need to find a a viable framework for it.
0: So, so you know the, the, the examples that you give of of the people who are presently in the medical market transitioning, those were all uh, more or less uh, legal venues. And I like what you say about the people's market, um, which some will call the casual market or the informal market. And it seems to me that uh, we should expect to see a blossoming or or uh, of the informal market because. We're in a different situation than we were 10 years ago. It's not that there is a black market of loosely associated people. These are people who have been working together the last five to 10 years. You've got solid networks. People know who each other are. You People are giving each other their business cards. I find it very difficult to believe that the state is going to be as successful as they hope in eradicating the unlicensed and untaxed um, medical artisan craftspeople from making the medicine that that they not only use to pay their bills, but has become people's passion and moral drive to help patients.
1: I could not agree any less with that. First off, let's start with just the definition. We talk about these people as black market, or the state cast us as black market. But how black is it when it's your neighbor three doors down? You've known him for 15 years, and you know he just put his daughter through college you know, with the few pounds of artisan cannabis that he creates in her old bedroom. Um, you know, These are new economic days in which we are all feeling more and more economically disenfranchised at a country or even statewide level and feeling more empowered to look within our closer communities to serve our own needs. We see this with local food. We see this with uh, local artisan crafts, and we're seeing it with local artisan cannabis. Um, you know, the power has tried to eradicate us for 80 years now. Uh, I like to ask our legislators, how, how are you doing so far? <laughs> You know, I, I sense that we are winning this battle for health and for minds. Um, you know, it's it, it, there are difficult times coming ahead, and I don't doubt that there are going to be a few significant uh, enforcement actions designed to scare us again. Um, but again, I think we're winning this this debate, and I think it is a debate. Uh, we've swung the pendulum over to the right again. Um, skills are not going to simply be allowed to lie fallow. The market will demand them. It's a shame that many of these business owners will be transformed into high-level talent for extraction companies, perhaps, or as master growers. Um, We're better off when we have small business, but there's little appetite on the part of the state right now for that decentralized small cottage industry.
0: Yeah, that's very true. So, Cat, um, one more thing I want to ta- ask you before we wrap up, since we're coming to the end of the show. You know, we've got people who listen to our show, tens of thousands of people all across the country and even uh, internationally, and, and most of those locales, are either just now adopting medical marijuana or or they have and they are moving towards recreational. But, but most everybody's got some kind of medical marijuana in play, even if it's being presented in front of the legislature and getting beaten right now. So with the, the scope of your 43 years of experience, what message can you send out to, to medical marijuana activists in their individual locales that can help buoy them that they're on the right path?
1: I think I could say be calm. First off, not everything happens in a day. Not everyone will learn what you have learned in a day. You will take a beating one day and come back victorious the next. Stay calm in what you ask for. Don't expect everything and don't take everything as a defeat when, in fact, you have a win on your hands in terms of progressing the conversation forward. And most of all, continue to love your community. Not everyone will stay stand in the exact same space that you do with respect to cannabis but to If we start assassinating each other in a circular firing squad, who's going to be there at the end? Our desire to free the plant will fail and it will be a turnover to big pharma and corporate farming interest. Um, That's not what we want. We see this as a populist issue. If we can all just ratchet down the level of anxiety and remember that we come from different places. And that we agree on 97% of everything, just differ on 3%. Let's not kill each other over that 3%. Let's keep marching this forward.
0: Very well said. Kat, thank you so much, not only just for being on this show, but for your decades of service to the scene, cannabis education, and sharing your passion and mentorship with the rest of us.
1: It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Shango, and good luck to everyone who's listening and who is still fighting this fight right along with Washington.
0: Grandma Cat Jeter is founder of Deep Green. You can follow Cat Jeter and Deep Green Extracts on their Facebook pages, and you can also go to the deepgreenextracts.com website for more information on that specific company. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur podcast in the podcast section at gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily along with transcriptions of this podcast. You can also download the Gantrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. For info on me and where I will be speaking, you can go to shangolos.com. Do you have a company that wants to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email grow at Gontrepreneur.com to find out how. Today's show was produced by Michael Rowe. I'm your host, Shango Los.